Father, we are so grateful to be together. We thank you that you love us, call us by name, draw us to yourself, Lord. You've known us from the foundations of the world, and you bring us to salvation at that planned time you have for us. And we become worshipers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians, ones that believe that salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. Lord, what a beautiful thing you've done. We Find it great joy to sing to you, Lord, from our youngest children to our oldest adults in this room. We all open our mouths and sing to you. Father, the scripture is just full of you telling us to shout to you. Under, even under the old covenant, they sang with horns and songs and stringed instruments, Lord, and wind instruments. And then certainly, Lord, under the new covenant, this side of the cross, oh, what even more reasons to sing. The whole plan of salvation has been completed in Christ. So, Lord, I thank you for a chance to worship with my brothers and sisters this morning. My heart is enriched to hear them sing, Lord, and to sing with them. Lord, we think of those who are even now watching online, Lord, our dear brothers and sisters who cannot come, uh, either continuing health issues or new health issues. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, for them. We ask that you would heal them, Lord. We know that you can do that. Um, and so we ask that you would heal them, Lord. But we also ask that you would... Give them grace and mercy and teach them great things about you, Lord, as they suffer through them. But help them to know we love them, Lord. Father, we are grateful for our missions around the world, Lord, that you let us join in your work in different places. Thank you for those missionaries who faithfully proclaim the gospel, Lord. Give them strength. These are hard times for them in many of these countries, Lord. Give them strength. Help us to remember them, to pray for them, to give to the church so the church can give to them. Lord, help us in these areas. We want to continue to see your gospel go forward all the way around the world. Lord, finally, we do pray for our country. We are a growing, divided country. And Lord, we sorrow at that. We know the principles that we were founded on, Lord, and yet we continue to stray. Father, we had asked that you would be merciful to us. You would not give us what we deserve. We pray that you would be kind to us, Lord, and you would allow us to continue to worship and preach the gospel. That's the only thing really Christians ask for. We want to be free to worship. We want to be free to share what we believe, Lord. We want to be free to send missionaries around the world, Lord. And so we vote that way. We love life in the womb and out of the womb. We love the elderly. We care for life that you give, Lord. And so far that that drives us to vote the way we vote and so cause us to have confidence in those things. Help us to trust you that there is no one who enters office outside of you allowing or ordaining that to take place, Lord. Our faith rests in you. And we praise you for that. But Lord, we are the church set apart, united under Jesus Christ. Keep us united, Lord. Do not, do not let disunity ever grow in this church. Keep us united through the word of God through the glory of Christ, through the fellowship of the saints. Lord, that will cause us to love you and walk with you in a greater way. We pray this and all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you have your Bibles on your lap or in your hands. I want to 
tell you that you have the most accurate, authentic document ever written sitting in your lap. Do you know that? There's been lots of history written through the years, lots of manuscripts of all kinds of history lessons and laws and all kinds of things around the world, but you hold in your hand the most accurate piece of history ever written down. I think a lot of Christians don't understand all that went through to give you your Bible. And so that's one of the reasons we preach so much on the sufficiency of scriptures. We hold a very high view of God's word. God's word is high to us. We understand that it's God's word given to us, written down, and God speaking to us. There's so many verses that come to mind when I think about the sufficiency of scriptures. But one of my favorites is found in first, oh, Second Peter chapter 1. There Peter, at the end of that first chapter, is rejoicing and speaking about the glorious experience that he got to see on the Mount of Transfiguration. There, when Christ was transfigured before him, like white as snow and bright as lightning, all before him, and they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Peter says this. It's chapter 1, verse 19. He says, So we have a prophetic, a prophetic word more sure. And what Peter's doing is assuring us that the word of God is greater than any experience you can have. That's why we preach the word, brothers and sisters. We don't preach Scott's word or anybody else's word. That just goes, just dies right there. We preach the word of God. It's living and active, the Bible says. It's sharper than a two-headed sword, meaning it gets you coming and going. It, it gets right to the heart of things because it's God's word. Peter goes on in that verse that says, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Oh, my goodness, is that not true today? We need the word of God more than we ever need it, isn't it? This very dark world, it shines the right way to go. People say, oh, Scott, what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there? Read your Bibles. It'll show you a light. It'll show you the path that you need to go. It'll direct you to Christ. 2 Timothy 3.16, of course, says all Scripture is inspired by God. I love that word. It means God breathed, that God exercised. It took strength. And he breathed his word to us. He gave us his very word. We don't read the words of some prophets or men that wrote, humanly wrote the Scriptures. We read the inspired word of God. And though he used these men as vessels to write through them and use their character and their personalities, he wrote it to us. And I love the rest of the phrase goes on to say that it's profitable. You know, the word of God is profitable. Boy, everybody's talking about profit and loss, don't they? You want the most profitable thing? It's sitting in your lap. It's tremendously profitable. It'll value everything, life and your family and your jobs and how you handle your finances, everything in your life it is profitable for, particularly for knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say that it even reproofs you. That means it means to expose error. Reproof means to expose error. You know, there's times we need to be, error needs to be exposed in Scott. He needs to see that he's wrong in an area. The word of God will do that. Do you like being wrong? I don't like being wrong. I, I want to be right. I want to understand things correctly. The Word of God does that. Read your Bibles. It also says that it's for correction. You and I need a course correction every once in a while. We, we get off track sometimes. We get fearful of things. Anxiety of this or that starts to push and pull on us. The Word of God corrects that. Puts us back where we need to be. Certainly the Word of God is for training and right living. You want to know how God wants you to live? Read your Bible. 
You'll never know how God wants you to live if you don't read your Bible. He's told us how to live, what's pleasing to him, not in order to gain his righteousness. We've gained that through Jesus Christ alone. But we live a life now from the word of God that's pleasing to him. And so he trains us to live that way through the word of God. And then one more last thought, just in way of introduction. I love the word of God as a voice. It's a voice. I know our charismatic friends get caught up in some of that. Well, God's told me this and God's told me that. Well, even their own prophets tell us there's out 75% right. I'm 100. I just don't know what to tell you. This is 100%. God speaks. I don't have to guess. I don't have to go, well, let's see if that all works out. We can believe God's word. He speaks to us. I love Jesus in Matthew, uh, excuse me, John 12, somewhere around there. He, he says, I speak to you what the Father has spoken to me. These are my words. Receive my words. Receive this. I'm speaking to you. Do you read the Bible that way? Do you read your Bible that way? When you sit out in the morning or afternoon or evening, when you have your Bible time, your quiet time, when you read the Bible, do you see and think about this, that God is speaking to you? Oh, what a joy to handle the word of God that way. It becomes very rich when we think about those terms. Well, we've been in a long study on Mark. I'm just about finished with it. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to jump off from. And there's a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing this morning is because uh, I want you to have supreme confidence in the word of God. And I'm going to show to you and prove to you that this last little section in Mark probably was not in the original manuscript. So I want you to have confidence in the word of God, but I want to help you understand a few things. Let me show you the first point, and then we'll dive into some to real scriptures to support some of these thought, thoughts that are given here. Um, number one, the disputed ending of Mark. The disputed ending of Mark. Well, Mark 9 through 20 is what we call the long, uh, long, and, and some Bibles even have the shorter ending put on to Mark. And it points to what we call textual uncertainty. Textual uncertainty. There's only just a couple of times in the Bible that we run into this. The other one is John chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. That is the story of the woman caught in adultery, and they bring her in, and they said that she should be stoned to death. And then, of course, Jesus says what? He draws in the sand. Remember, he's sitting down in the sand. He goes, which one of you without sin are going to throw the stone? Remember that? Well, that passage, too, we don't believe is in the original manuscripts. And what happens here, brothers and sisters, there's a few places, just a few minor places, none that affect us doctrinally, that we believe were what we call scribal insertions. And um, some well-meaning scribe has put into uh, a later manuscript this story or this added part of it. And this is what we come to in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Now, Though many of the later manuscripts contain both the long and the short ending here, the most reliable manuscripts that we look to, the most consistency, don't have them in there. You'll notice if you look in your Bible, you'll see that there's brackets around this. Look at verse 9 and round 20. Most of your modern translations there will put brackets. And then in the margin, they'll say something like that these, the, the more uh, uh, updated or the, the better uh, MMS manuscripts will say that this portion is not in there. Now, NSB, if you look at the NSB, which I teach out of, has both the longer and the shorter on it. It tacks the shorter right at the end of 20. Uh, the ESV just carries the longer one. Uh, KJV and new KJV um, don't have anything marked in there. Um, 
They didn't say anything about it. But if you have a study Bible with KJV, they'll say, something will say in there. These are probably not in that text. But New, uh, New Living and the Living Bible, the Holman Bible, the NIV, all make notations of it. Now, there's no other ancient book that has been preserved like the Bible. And I want to come back and help secure your thoughts of how excellent our translations are. There are historical documents that we have out there that go all the way back to the 3rd century. And, I mean, go, go long, long ways back. There, there are laws from kings and, and some constitutions that were written way back in ancient days. Some of those have made through. But when we look at them, there's only seven or eight copies of those. And most of them are very torn apart. They're very hard to read. We don't, we don't have real accurate ones, but there's a few ancient documents that are out there. You know, when we come to the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we have more than 5,000 manuscripts that God has preserved. 5,000 manuscripts. Now, a manuscript, the autograph was what, say, let's take Apostle Paul when he wrote Philippians. That's the autograph. Manuscripts were copies of that, taken from that, and they would rewrite them and then disperse them to the early church. We have found nearly 5,000 of those manuscripts. So we are able to compare manuscript to manuscript, manuscript to manuscript, and make sure that our Bibles are accurate. And it's amazing because they are. They're tremendously accurate. You have in your lap the most accurate, authentic work of literature ever written. Now we know that because God wrote it. But it has been preserved for us for many, many, many years. Now there's other manuscripts that have portions of the Bible in them. You'll find a manuscript that will have certain books written in there. And if we start compiling all of the Bible in the manuscripts that we found, it's over 25,000 manuscripts that are out there that men can look at as they work on translation. It's an amazing thing. There's nothing like it. The ancient world has been preserved through a sovereign God in his providence. He, he preserved these through myriads of time, um, these ancient documents so that we know we know millennia later that we have accurate copies of the Bible. Now, if you want to go to seminary, and no seminary students in here, you haven't got to this class, so let me scare you. Um, you're going to take a class called textual criticism. It is not one of the easier classes in, in um, seminary. It is a class where, uh, if you've ever looked at a Greek Bible, there's tons of little numbers and letters and little swoops and all kinds of things down the bottom. Well, all of those are telling you where that manuscript set, that that they use to translate that. And so you learn, in seminary, you learn to track those down. And, uh, and what it's done, well, why we do this with our seminarians is we want them to have the utmost assurance that they know they can defend that we teach God's word. And it is a, it's a fun class, but it's not an easy class. Now, just think about what took place. Um, was it about 1450 or so? We started having a printing press and, and then we could start to print things. But before then, listen, brothers and sisters, everything was handwritten. And I want to just help you understand this beautiful process that God led men in to give us uh, so we had accurate Bibles. When they would take a manuscript, uh, say, let's go back um, all the way to when Paul wrote something. And then there was a manuscript that came from that so they could disperse it among the churches. They would have several scribes. There's usually seven that would oversee these. And they would start with a middle letter on one line. They would start on a middle letter. Then they would go to the letter to the left of that. And then to the letter to the right of it. Then to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right. And work their way out like that. Then it would be handed to seven men who would check it to make sure every letter was in its right place. 
And then once that was secure, someone who oversaw that work would, would mark that line off and they'd go to the next line. Think it took them a while to translate the Bible? That's how accurate our Bibles are. And I love that process because it reminds us, because somebody will all tell you, oh, the uh, Bible's not God's word anymore. It's been all, yeah, they don't know. They have not studied. You spend time in textual criticism, you begin to realize we have the most excellent document given down to us, and we praise the Lord for that. So that brings me to Mark 16, verse 9 through 20. Well, here's what we believe here, is that this was a scribal insertion, we call it. And what that means is, this is my thoughts, I'll give you my thoughts, lots of other people would say something something similar to this. I think you found a well-meaning scribe that says, you just didn't tell the whole story. Mark ends abruptly in verse 8. When you look back at verse 8, it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the end of the story. Well, a lot of people look at that and go, Uh, wait a minute. (laughs) I know something else happened. And so here a scribe, somewhere, we believe somewhere in the second century, came along and added to it. Now, what he was trying to do, I think, had he was well it was well-meaning. And he probably looked at all the other things that were happening, and, and he wanted to try to give you, you know, the Paul Harvey type thing, right? The rest of the story is what he was trying to do. But yet, it, we realize that we want to study God's Word, and so we start to look at the external evidence. That's the manuscripts. And then we look at the internal, internal evidence. And when you look at the internal evidence, when you studied Mark, and I've been in it for this last year, as soon as I read 9 through 20, I go, that's not Mark. You know, if your wife writes you a love letter, and then somebody else tried to write you a love letter, you go, oh, that's not Gina. (laughs) I know the difference. Right? You know, you can tell in the way they write. And you can see that in Mark, and I'm going to point that out to you as we go along. And that's what we call internal evidence. And we realize that this is probably just a scribal insertion that's put here. It's very rare. It rarely happens in the Bible. This and, of course, the John passage. And maybe a, a, a phrase here or there in different places in your Bible. But very few are there. Now, Mark was written much later than Matthew and Luke. So everybody, the early church knew what happened. And so everybody goes, well, what happened to Mark? Well, we don't know. There's nothing, I couldn't find nothing in the church histories that kind of tell us did Mark just have a heart attack here and, you know, his pen just go like that at eight? What happened? Why didn't he finish it? Story. Well, we don't know. But that's okay. Has anybody read the book of Jonah? Do you know what happens at the end of Jonah? No, you don't, because there's nothing there. He just finishes. He's underneath a tree complaining, and then he just ends. Like, what happened after this? God's word doesn't always tell us every aspect of who God is and what he does. But he tells us what we need to know. But sometimes, like this scribe here, he decided that we needed to know a little more. Now, with that said, I want to encourage you in two areas. First, you hold in your lap an extremely accurate translation of God's word. We do not have the autographs, and I think, I think that's important why God has not let us find those. Because as soon as we find that, someone will be able to build a church over it or start worshiping those pieces of paper of some sort. We have manuscripts, and those manuscripts, we are able to line up thousands of them next to each other and find this translation into our English language, and you have excellent translations. You have excellent translations. People often ask me what I teach out of. I teach out of the New American. Um, I like ESV, several of those. I like a word-for-word translation. I want, I want what we do, what those, what those men and women did with translating them. They brought it from word, from, from the Greek or the Hebrew, and they tried to bring it right into our English language as, e, as 
easy as they could. Uh, and so that's what we teach them. So you have great translations in your lap. Secondly, the verses added in Mark, I want you to understand this, do contain truth. And that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to pull the truths out, but we're going to look at other passages of how they were fulfilled. But I want you to know this. There's nothing doctrinally errant in it. So you can go ahead. It's not like you have to tear, take scissors, and go cut out 9 through 20 out of your Bible. And, and it's certainly not wrong to read it. There's no doctrinal error there. But we're going to take the thoughts that the scribe is inserting here, and we're going to go see what happened in the other passages here this morning. So that's what we'll do this morning. So let me move to... Uh, number two, and we're going to look at Mary Magdalene and her Savior. Thought number two, Mary Magdalene and her Savior. Look in our text, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 11. Let's look what it says here. Notice it starts in a bracket. Now after he has risen, that's Jesus, had risen early, excuse me, now after he, Jesus, had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast, seven, cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and that he, and that, and excuse me, and had sent, been sent by her, they refused to believe. Now, there's several things here that just jump out to you right away. First of all, isn't it interesting that he marks Mary Magdalene as a woman that demons were cast out? And you say, well, isn't that true? It is. But we only have one spot in the entire New Testament in the gospel recordings where it says that. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Never again, after the, uh, the um, salvation and, and the freedom that Christ gives Mary Magdalene, is she ever, ever called the woman who was possessed by demons. Now, isn't it interesting that, that the scribe comes back and marks her for that? Mary Magdalene is a sister in Christ. Jesus never looked at her that way as a demon woman. <laughs> Or the ex-demon woman. He looked at her as a sister in Christ. In fact, the Bible always says Mary Magdalene and the other Marys. Mary Magdalene and the women. So forth. Mary Magdalene was a leader. She had a dynamic, probably, personality. And she had come from such difficulties, right? One said that when your canvas was as black as hers, the glory of Christ would shine when painted on there. I mean, that's, you know, she had suffered much. She had been deep into sin. All the things that probably come with demonic. She loved her Savior. And so, you, right off the bat, you see a few things. Notice also in 10 and 11, you kind of see a negative tone here. She went back and she reported to those who are weeping and mourning and weeping. And certainly, they were, I don't doubt that that was happening. But notice in verse 11, they refused to believe her. Well, that's very strong language. No, that isn't. That's not what happened. They got up and went and looked at the tomb. <laughs> Do you remember that? So they, there's different things that we begin to see, internal evidence that, that this is probably in addition to the word of God. So what I want to do this morning is turn to John chapter 20. Let's go look at this scene that he is talking about. Let's look at Mary Magdalene and see what happened here so we have a good understanding of the word of God. John chapter 20 verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she, stu she stooped and looked in the tomb. Now let's catch up on a little bit what's going on here. Remember the ladies left before sunup, and they probably came from Bethany and worked their way around the Mount of Olives, across the Valley, went over to the grave where they had seen Jesus buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're making their way over there. Their hearts are heavy. They're not sure how the stone is going to be rolled away. Um, they don't think the guys probably handled the body right. They have all these things going on in their mind. They get there. The stone is rolled away. And great excitement happens, but great fear. And there's angels there. 
And so what probably happens somewhere along the line, Mary turns and bolts. The other women go into the tomb. There they hear the announcement. She goes back. She goes back to tell Peter and John, Jesus is gone. His body's gone. They leave. They bolt back to the tomb. Somewhere along the path, Mary's now making her way back there. Those men have left, and she ends up at the tomb by herself. And that's where we find this scene. You have to read all the, uh, and study all the harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and kind of see what's going on here with this woman. But here she find, we find herself at the tomb by herself. Look at verse 12. And she said, and she saw the two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now, we see that Mary um, is emotional. Uh, she's, she's, she's still probably tremendously weak, doubtlessly not much sleep, not much food. Listen, she's watched her Savior go through a legal trial. She's seen or at least heard about the abuse he went through. He, she was there at the cross and watched from a distance what they did to Jesus. Those hours and hours on the cross. Um, and then she followed that body to the tomb and and she's overwhelmed. She's, she's weeping over the mistreatment of her Lord. And, and now all she wants to do, all she wants to do is just take care of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body is missing. <laughs> that body is not there. And so she seems to be overwhelmed. She's at a loss of where her Lord is. She, she, she could not give him the proper burial that she believed he needed. And this seems to be the end. It's almost when you see Mary, she's, this is it. Now I've even lost the body. And because of that, this grief-stricken woman, she doesn't recognize things. If you've ever been struck with deep grief, you don't see things sometimes. And if you're ministering to somebody who's grieving deeply, you need to be very careful. Because their minds and hearts are, are hurt and bent towards something else for a while. And sometimes people just say ignorant, uh, foolish things to them and, or, or don't, aren't tender with them as they're going through something. When you look at Mary, she is grief-stricken. She doesn't even get these are angels most likely there. If she totally would have understood that, it would be a different response. But Mary does not see that. But our Lord is not far away. Our Lord loves Mary Magdalene. Like he loves us. And he's come to comfort Mary's heart. Look at verse 14. Excuse me, 13. And they said to, said to her, um, the angels first said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So, so here she's not recognizing her grief. has kind of blinded her to, to what's going on here. These are angels. They're from the presence of God. I mean, these are incredible beings. And yet grief causes her not to see the truth. Verse 14, and when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but, and did not know it was Jesus. You kind of see the scene. It's very easy. Her head's down. Remember, people who are grieving, um, who are very upset, often they're down. Their heads are down. They often look at the ground. And you can imagine, maybe she never even made eye contact with the angels. It just wasn't computing. And she sweeps around and she turns and there is the legs and feet of Jesus and, and her being a woman in a male-dominated world, maybe she never even raised her head. But whatever it is, she does not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's veiled to his appearance. And maybe that's Jesus did that. Maybe the last time she saw Jesus, he was so bloodied, so beaten, unrecognizable. But whatever the case, she does not recognize him. And she presumes him to be the garter. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weaving? Same question the angels asked her. 
Whom are you seeking? And this, this is where we start to see such the heart of Mary. And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, this, this teaches you a lot about her. One, she wants to be with the body of Christ. She, she wants to be where Christ is. And as gruesome as that may sound, even though in her mind she thinks Jesus is dead, she wants to be with Christ. And, and then, what is she going to do with him <laughs> by herself? See, she's grief-stricken. She's not thinking about B. She's thinking about A, <laughs> This is what I got to do. I've got to get to. I've got to honor his body. I want to take care of him. I want to show my last aspect of worship to him. Whatever is going through her heart and however she sees Jesus as a gardener or whatever, the Lord was exposing the precious heart of one of his dear lambs. And Mary's response is priceless. Where, what have you done with him? Look at verse 16. Jesus says to her, Mary. Oh, I love this phrase. One word. Jesus says, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus just merely speaks her name. I, I think that's so fascinating. When people are in grief, there's so much lessons here. When people are in grief, with you're going through some kind of struggle, you have to turn to Christ. You can turn to a million other things. People turn, the world's turning to alcohol. Alcohol sales at an all-time record high. Drug abuse. Divorce. Divorce has gone through the roof during COVID. They have nowhere to turn. What's Mary doing? She's looking for Jesus. That's how we handle grief. That's how we handle sorrow. We run to him. And who is there? Him himself. Jesus is there saying, Mary. He, he instantly awakens her from her troubles. By just speaking her name. You know, there's such, a, there's such a parallel here to our salvation. God calls us by name, the Bible says. I mean, think about what the scripture teaches about our salvation. He knows us before the foundations of the world. Ex nihilo, before there was anything, God knew all of his children. Who he was going to save, when he was going to save, how he was going to save, he knew all that. And when that time comes in his divine sovereign grace, he opens our mind and our hearts and he calls us by name and calls us out of this evil world to be his children. It's astounding, isn't it? It's miraculous. And here, when you hear your name being called by God, called by our Lord and Savior, you awaken to him. And she's in a slumber here, probably a spiritual slumber, right? She's in a spiritual slumber and Jesus wakens her. Mary, my daughter, it's me. I love the passages of scriptures that remind us. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, It was for this he called you. Called you, kaleo. Called you, picked you out, chose you, spoke to you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened. When you got saved, God called you out and you gained the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that Jesus died for you forgave you of your sins. You have eternal position. You may not have got all that down, but you just knew Jesus died for you, isn't it? You might have been six or 60, but you saw the glory of Jesus. And see, he does that. He awakens you. He calls you by name. And he brings you to himself. When he does that, boy, Mary's fears cease, didn't she? 
all the eternal loss that she was looking at. Afraid of that. She, she seems to believe in the resurrection will happen someday, but she can't put it together even though the one who was life and resurrection was in front of her. She's struggling with that, but all that's gone immediately. John said it this way. He says, perfect love cast out all fear. At that moment, Christ, perfect love, cast out all fear that was going through her. Where's my Savior? How am I going to do this? How am I going to survive life? No one would take me. And here the Lord Jesus cast out that fear and she grabs onto him. I love that moment when we hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just some of those questions we have to think about. What are you going to do with fear if you're not a, if you're not a Christian? If you have truly been, been brought to God through Christ alone, what are you going to do with your fears? The world's so afraid right now. I mean, the animosity, fear, and hatred in our world, in our United States, is higher than ever that I've ever seen. I mean, it is astounding. But here we are, a fairly packed out sanctuary, full of people who say, we don't want to fear, we want to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is what he gives you. See, because you can't stand against death on your own, so Christ took death for you, so you don't fear death. And there may be a day coming in our generation or our children's generation where they will start killing Christians again if the Lord tarries. They will go after us. They will not put up with our view of marriage and, and life and so forth. They will take us on because of our narrow view of God, that there is only one way to the true God. But we don't fear that. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 when, and 15, when Christ went to the cross and when, when he was resurrected, the Bible says he took the fear of death out of the hand of the devil. For you and I. He took it right away from him. And so now we live for our resurrected Savior. And, and I think that's so illustri illustrated in Mary Magdalene. She's, she's, she's caught up with death, right? The one she worshipped and followed and washed, her feet, washed his feet with her hair. The one that came and, and chose to kind of give up life and follow Jesus is dead. The fear of death had gripped Mary Magdalene and Jesus takes that fear of death away from her. And she continues to be a lifetime worshiper. Look at verse 17. Mary clings to him. You can see the scene before the verse even says it. As soon as she says Rabboni, Rabboni, she just falls to her knees and most likely grasps his ankles or his feet or his legs or something. In verse 17, Jesus says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, listen to this, I ascend to my father, your father, my God, and your God. What, what an incredible thing that's taking place here. Jesus is saying, look, Mary, don't hold on to what you've seen the last three years. There's something way better coming. Because, you know, he's back. I mean, her temptation was, he's back. He going, no, no, no. I'm going to heaven. You're getting the spirit. And the church is going to be birthed. And you're going to be part of that. And you're going to give announcement of what I've done. You're going to go back and tell my disciples what you've seen. And so there's a new era coming. There's a new covenant's coming in. The church is going to explode. People are going to be gathered. Christ is going to be drawing thousands to himself. And he's going to be head of the church. And so he says, look, Mary, don't hang on to these things. And I believe he's saying, I'm not leaving yet. I have a few more people to show myself to. But Mary, look, I got a job for you. You need to go give this message. I'm going to my God and your God. I'm going to, how's it say it? I just lost my 
my, my father and your father. I'm going to my God and your God. What amazing personal pronouns that are in that verse. Are those circled in your Bible? I would circle those if I were you. I'm going to my father and your father. What does that do for us? That has put us in the family. You are no longer uh, outside of the family of God. You're my family. I'm going to our father. What an astounding saying. That's why you have confidence to say, my father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's our father. And this was the message she was to carry. He's risen. He's gone to see our father and our God. That was what she was to tell them. And and God gives Mary this great blessing of being the first one to capture the vision of a resurrected Savior. And not only that, but be the first one to carry the message. It's still being carried today by godly women and godly men. Jesus has risen from the dead. He can forgive your sins and give you eternity. Believe. We still carry that message. The sting of death is gone, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message she carried, and here's how she did it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That's what he's doing with her. Go tell them. I know they're afraid. I know they might have a hard time listening to you. You go tell them. I love that story, because you and I do the same thing. You got Thanksgiving coming, don't you? If you're in California, you can only have three people over and they can't sit at the same table. But not in Florida. You got family coming. Don't be afraid to tell them this message. What are they going to do? Be mad at you and go to hell for the rest of their life? What are you waiting for? We carry a message like Mary Magdalene. By God's sovereign grace, you have the opportunity to be to the father, to be your father, and, and, and to be your God. And Mary carries this tremendous message. Look at verse 18 with me. And Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples. This, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tremendous encouragement in this. She's announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. You notice the way the insertion in Mark, it was just about rebuke but they didn't believe her, or they were weeping. That's not in this. That's not the tone and the language of the verbs here. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples. She's ecstatic. And her phrase, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things. Oh, my goodness, did that change the ballgame? Men start heading for uh, Aramaeus Road. Other men start heading for Galilee. Um, Peter and John are running to tombs. I mean, all kinds of stuff's happening. There's belief in their growing in their understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Go back to with me to Mark again. Mark chapter 16. And look at verses 12 and 13. Mark 16, 12 and 13. This is under our third thought, the Emmaus Road in a biblical theology lesson. The Emmaus Road in a biblical theology lesson. Verse 12, after that, he appeared in different forms to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to others, but they did not believe them either. Now, 
These two verses, here the scribe is attempting to kind of summarize the Emmaus road and the experience with the two disciples that Jesus met with there. But again, notice the scribe, he he focuses on unbelief. That's not what we're going to see in just a moment. It it seems to be out of character of Mark in in the gospel presentation. The gospel presentation is, well, you know, they're not going to believe, but I'll tell them. I mean, this guy's like an Eeyore. I mean, come on. Have faith in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't let people in these pulpits that aren't excited about Christ. I get, that's my, one of my divisions of labor. I get to say who comes here. Not, and we have a lot of divisions, like a lot of things going on here. But I, this is my ministry. But if you're not going to be excited, if this does not get you excited, you will not be in this pulpit. <laughs> so Mr. Eeyore here won't get to be here. You and I get excited about this. And there is exciting events that take place. Look with me at Luke 24. I want to show you what he's talking about. Now, he's referencing this. But he's referencing the true inspired passage. Look with me at verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. The previous verses will tell you that there was a lot of confusion, right? They thought he was dead. Women have seen angels. People are going back and forth. Peter runs to the tomb in verse 12. He outruns John. He sees the linens. I mean, now they're starting to be, well, wait, wait a minute. This is true. And it's starting to build. It's starting to build. And then all of a sudden, we drop into this scene on the Emmaus Road, verse 13, Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So I'll think about this, seven-mile walk. I'm thinking what happens, you know, if you write a slow walk, it's probably 20 minutes. But here's what's going to happen. They're going to go, are you kidding me? And they're going to walk a little bit because Jesus is telling them these amazing things. Um, and so it might have t- taken quite a bit, maybe two, three, four hours this walk. And notice verse 14. And they were talking with each other all about these things which has taken place. Verse 15. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself, I love the personal pronoun there, Jesus himself approaches and begins traveling with them. Here's another great verse on the resurrection. Jesus, the kind of lookalike guy, appears. I mean, there's all kinds of people that don't believe he ever raised from the dead. The Bible says right here, Jesus himself. He, he approaches them. And he began traveling with them. <laughs> you imagine they're talking. He just kind of whoop, steps right into the conversation with them. Verse 16. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He's done this with Mary Magdalene. He does this every once in a while. I think he's doing this because he wants to hear them out. He wants to entreat truth out of them. And you watch him do this. Verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still and looked sad. And one of them, finally starts to speak, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you kidding me? Are are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? He said, That's what the Lord does. He just loves to entreat out of you. Read more. Read more. That's what he does. Read more. Come on, keep reading. Keep trying to figure out what's going on here. I love that he does this. And And they said to him, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> like, have you been under a rock? I mean, these things everybody knows about. They, they don't know who they're talking with, do they? Who was a prophet, mighty. They kind of mislabeled him, though he was a prophet, priest, and king. But they get him as a prophet here, mighty indeed. He did a tremendous amount of things. In word, he spoke, he preached. The Bible said he constantly preached in the sight of God and all the people. Verse 20, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to, be, to a sentence of death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we were all hoping that he was he who was going to redeem Israel, the Messiah. 
Indeed, besides all of this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. And when they were at the tomb early this morning and they did not find the body, his body, and they came saying, they have also seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. I mean, the story's starting to unpack and Jesus is going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. You know, he's right there with them. It's incredible. Finally, Jesus speaks up. Verse 25, he said to them, oh foolish men, Oh, foolish men. Now, that word seems a little harsh in our society today. But it says you're not thinking. You're slow of thought. You're not putting two and two together. You're not putting the Old Testament together here. He's trying to awaken them that they have let their emotions and they've seen all the experiences over trump over truth. That's, that's what he's He's pushing them to do, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe, now listen to this, in all that the prophets have spoken. You are looking too small here. You're looking at a little slice in time. You need to look at all that God has done. And then notice what he does. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the word Christ you could put in there, Messiah, Christ, but he's speaking personally of Jesus Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Now that's a statement question. Notice that in your Bible. It'll have a question mark, but it's a statement. Wasn't this necessary? What are you going to do with Isaiah 53? We don't know. And then verse 27 begins the greatest biblical theology lesson ever given. Beginning with Moses. That would be the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible. And with all the prophets, he explained to them, now look at this, things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. Now, this is a seminary class that comes up you don't want to miss. The Lord himself is teaching it. He drops them into Genesis 3.15, right into the garden with two Naked, hiding people who sin has revealed their dark hearts and, and their deadness to God and drops them in the middle of that. And here's God saying, look, I'm sending a seed and he'll crush the head of Satan and he'll free you from death. And Jesus goes, that's me. You foolish ones. He takes him into Genesis 22 on the mountain on high as Abraham has Isaac there about ready to slay his son. And the lamb is provided at the last moment and is sacrificed instead. And he begins to tell them, this was a picture of me. I'm the lamb. I came. I came just to be sacrificed for you. And he works his way down through the scriptures and probably comes to the crescendo of Isaiah 53 and says, that's me. That's me. And all the awe that they must have had. And you see it. You see it. Look as we go on for sake of time. As they approached the village they were going. And he acted as though he was going to go further. I love when Jesus does this. Entreat you to say, Yo, no, 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 no. Don't leave us, Lord. Stay with us. That's what you should do when you leave here, Lord. I don't want to, I don't, I love hearing your word today. I want to go home and I want to hear you on Monday. And I want to hear you on Tuesday. And I want to hear you. See, see, that's what he wants out of these guys. Verse 29, but they urged him, begged him, pleaded with him, is the word saying, stay with us. For it is getting towards evening and the day is now nearly over. 
So he went and stayed with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it. And in breaking it, he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished in their sight. Oh, it gets better. Verse 32, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? While he was speaking to us on the road, while, we were ex- while he was explaining the scriptures to us, oh, brothers and sisters, in a minute here, in just a little bit, we're going to break bread. We're going to come to the Lord's table to communion. You're going to hold that little way from your hand, and I'm going to ask you a question. Does this make you think of Jesus and remember him, or do you think that, oh, man, this is good. This will help me get rid of my sins. What does it make you do? See, when we break bread, we think of Christ, particularly when we come to the table. That's the goal. And when they broke bread and they had it in their hands and they looked at him, their hearts started to burn and they thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, when we hear or see or partake in the communion, the Lord's table, we, our hearts should burn and rejoice over remembering the things of Jesus Christ. We're not here to take a table to, to get some kind of penance to, well, now I feel better about myself. That's not what the communion's for. Communion is worship. When you hold that bread in your hand, you think of who? The bread of life. The giver of life. The one who laid down his life for you. And that's what happened to these men. Begin to burn in their hearts. They began to think of the greatest teacher ever to walk on the earth as he explained the scriptures to them. The word explaining means to open up completely. You go, how did the disciples start preaching the way they did in in Acts chapter 2? Because the Spirit of God came to them and opened up completely the word to them. And they preached the Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament at that time. But they preached the New Covenant. All this was fulfilled in Christ. And people heard Christ preach and their hearts burned. And God gathers 3,000 and 4,000 and 5,000. Then he came and got us. And he gathered us 2,000 years later. And we're part of his great church. And so... Look, they go back. They can't stand it. That very hour, verse 33 says, they get up, they leave, they go to Jerusalem, they go find the 11, and they begin to tell him, the Lord has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. This is the only point where we see this. Somewhere along the line, the Lord appears to Simon. And then verse 35, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Look, this is why I don't think Mark is inspired, the end of Mark's inspired, because he's negative. This passage is, hey, we've seen the Lord. He's risen. And the minute he broke bread, we knew we were in his presence. What a beautiful text. What a beautiful reminder. Forethought. I've got to keep moving here. Um, the blessing of believing in our unsaved Savior. Blessing of believing in our unseen Savior. Just look back at Mark real quickly. Just one verse and then I'll, then I'll quickly show you a passage and we'll celebrate the table together. Mark chapter 16. Where'd Mark go? There it is. Verse 14. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them. Keep an eye on that. For their unbelief and the hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he was risen. Well, turn with me back to John chapter 20. This is the text that Pastor Jerry read for us during our scripture reading. This is the text of the upper room again. Um, They have returned maybe to the possibly the upper room that they broke bread with Jesus the night before his death. Or they're in some room. Um, The Bible says in verse 19 that that very evening, so this is the, the resurrection evening. On the first day of the week when the doors were shut, presumably locked, 
where the disciples were. They were afraid for the Jews, the Bible says here. And Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, isn't that fascinating? Door shut, locked, presumably. He comes right through it. You go, well, is that true? Well, Luke chapter 4. Remember the crowd's trying to kill him and throw him off a cliff, and he just disappears and goes right through him? This isn't, he can do that. Now he's in, he's also in his resurrected body as well. So here he is. But notice what he says. Don't miss this, verse 19. The first thing he says to his to his disciples after his resurrection is peace be with you. Wow, what a statement. You know, there's so much to that. Because look, he now can say, you are at peace with my father who is your father, with my God who is your God, because I have put an end to the wrath. Isn't that amazing? I have put an end. And so the first thing he does, it says, peace be with you. You have peace through the justification, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, because you've been justified through Jesus Christ alone, you have peace with God. And so his first statement to these men who had only heard that he had been resurrected, who had not met him outside of Peter, and not seen him resurrected, his first words are, peace, peace be to you, be with you. Oh, what a statement. You know, if you're saved today, you have peace with God. If you're not, you're still at war with him. Did you catch that? It's either one or two. If you're saved this morning by, by Jesus Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, you are at peace with God. If you're not, you're still at war with God. And that's a war you're not going to win. And so here he comes in and says, peace be with you. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw him. Notice the, they're rejoicing. This isn't, this isn't a rebuke like uh, the end of Mark has. There's a rejoicing here. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. He says it again, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now he's commissioning them. I was sent. God sent me from heaven to come to this earth. I fulfilled what God sent me to do. Now I'm sending you. And I'm sending you with peace. With a message of peace. How people can have peace with God. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Uh, and said they received the Holy Spirit. This is a, a great verse. And, and really this is what happens in the Old Testament. This is a promise here of the Holy Spirit. We know it comes in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. Where the Holy Spirit comes in and fills them. And they begin to go preach in the church's birth at that time. But it's a promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 23. Look if you forgive sins they'll be forgiven. If you retain them they'll be retained. And what does that mean? This has been abused by churches hasn't it? No it simply means this. When you share the gospel with somebody. You share a clear gospel with somebody and you tell them, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he saves you alone without any of your own effort and you believe solely that Jesus Christ appeased God, he died on the cross for your sins, you add nothing to that. You can tell that person they're forgiven. You can do that and you should do that. But if they say, oh, come on, Scott, just by believing in Jesus Christ that and that I didn't add anything, I could be saved for eternity, you can say, if you reject that message, you will stay in your sins and die in your sins. See, that's what this verse is doing. It's no different than Matthew 16, when he said, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. That's the keys to the kingdom, the gospel. You're not, you don't have to wear a pointy hat and robes and all that kind of stuff and go through certain schools and do that to tell this message. You are priest of God now, the Bible says. You can go out and tell the world how to enter through the veil, the, the torn veil, and come to the presence of God. And you can say your sins can be forgiven. 
was on the golf course on our vacation. I was golfing with a couple guys from Houston, just got linked up with them. And of course, I always wait for the question, so what do you do? And it's going to be a long 18 holes or, or what's going to happen? And uh, I said, I had the great, I told them this, I've used this often. I said, I have the greatest job in the world. They go, what is that? There were two wealthy um, East Indian men in gas and oil. And, uh, and they said, what is that? And then I said, I get to tell people how their sins can be forgiven. Well, who's going first? <laughs> I mean, it was just like, <laughs> um, and I had to work for 18 holes to work on the gospel and help them to share what I believed with them, but, and I shot a terrible round, but it was worth it, you know. Um, just the joy to tell them, look, I get to do this. I get to tell you you can have your sins forgiven. See, so don't be afraid to tell people, I know how you can have your sins forgiven. I know how you can be free of that. You put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, add nothing to it. Trust that he satisfied and appeased the Father completely on your behalf. And trust him. Oh, what beautiful lessons are here. Go, Father, with me. Verse 24. Um, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with him when Jesus came. Verse 25, probably somewhere during the week, the other disciples were saying, And we have seen the Lord. But he said, he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of his nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand, literally means thrust my hand into a side, I will not believe. Eight days later, Sunday to Sunday, next Sunday night, he shows back up again. His disciples were gathered again, and Thomas was with them, verse 26. And Jesus came, came and the doors had been shut, presumably locked, and stood in their midst and said again, ha ha, peace be with you. They're, they're men of peace now. They're not under the wrath of God, verse 27. And then he said to Thomas, if you don't think Christ is God, here's another verse for you. He heard Thomas's thoughts and the words he put in later in that week. Did somebody send him a memo? Hey, Jesus, you know, this is what Thomas was saying when you weren't here. <laughs> he knows. He hears you. Ooh. <laughs> And says, look what he says to him, Thomas, reach here, put you with your finger. This is, isn't this what you said, Thomas? Yeah. And see my hands, and, and reach here your hand, thrust it into my side. And then he says this, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Believe. Unbelief is the problem in society. They don't believe in the one God sent. Our world is coming apart at seams. Marriages are coming apart at seams. Relationships are coming apart at seams because they don't believe in the one who can heal, the one who can forgive your sins. And oh, Thomas, so. You go, then don't be too hard on him. He was the one that said, when Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem, he goes, well, let's go to Jerusalem and die. I, I might have been sarcastic, but I think he, he knew what it was going to cost him. If we follow this man, we're going to die. I think that's cool. Thomas also said, Lord, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, you know, remember he says, have you seen me? Have you seen the Father? That whole, that's Thomas in that uh, back and forth with Jesus. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's a doubting Thomas. I've never liked that term for him. I think he's thinking things through. And here he has seen the Lord and notice what he says. Thomas answers and said, my Lord and my God. Right along the same terms, Jesus says, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now Thomas wasn't there for that scene. He comes out of him, what the Spirit brings out of him, truth, and he, and he just bolts it out, my Lord and my God. 
my master and my Yahweh, my, my God, my, my ruler of all. I mean, it is a profound statement of a saved man. And you and I claim the same thing when he calls us out of darkness, when he calls us out of unbelief. He's our God. He's our Lord. We believe in lordship salvation because he's our Lord. He rules over us. He owns us. He called us. He hells us. He knows that we're his children from the foundations of the world. They, you can't describe a better definition of Lord than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Thomas does. And notice Jesus says to him in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then this phrase, he's talking to you and I, Riverbend Church, individual in here who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to you, listen, blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. What a statement. What a statement of the glory of Christ that, that he thinking of us, and the word bless means not just joy, but it's, it's a position. It's blessed, and we get this word blissful from it at times, but, but here it's, it's this position with God. Those who have never seen him, have you, anybody seen, was anybody there at the scene of the cross? You're a lot older than me if you were. I mean, were you there? Or did you see him here and believe? The Bible says you have a position that is unbelievable. The apostles pick up on this term. Paul calls Jesus Christ my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 2, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that we have the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John calls him the true God in eternal life. This, this just blows up as they begin to think about who they're with and that the people they will preach to will believe. Sight unseen. Sight unseen, but we've seen them through the scriptures. Somebody shared the gospel with you. God plunged faith into your heart and you believed. Amen? And we praise God for that. God has granted you saving faith. Are you grateful that he melted your heart? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the word, Lord. We thank you for the book of Mark. It has really encouraged us, Lord, in many ways. We thank you even for this scribal assertion, Lord. Um, it is, uh, it's caused us to look at these other passages, to understand these truths, Lord, that happened. And we've rejoiced in knowing who you are this morning. But, Lord, we want to turn our attention to your table. You left us a great ordinance. You left us several. You left baptism for us to make public professions that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That all takes place after salvation. And you also left us this table to be reminded that our sins are forgiven. Lord, we do not want to come to this table in any way thinking that we would gain something from this. The only thing we may gain is a better view of you, Lord. That you're glorious. And be reminded of ourselves, in ourselves, that you forgave our sins. And so, Lord, as we take this and worship for a few moments together as a family, may you be honored and glorified by what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.